My name is Amos. I want to just draw your attention, especially if you're new, to the bulletin one more time. We have a Connect card in there, and we really would appreciate if you fill out as much as you're comfortable doing that. And because uh, we, we just want to help you connect, we actually send you a little something in the mail if this is your first time. And, and we also love to hear what God is doing. And if you have any prayer requests, there's a place where you can fill those in and drop those in the uh, little pouches in the seats in front of you. So when you get bored while I'm talking, that would be a great opportunity for you to do that. So I was, uh, we were at a f- some friend's house last night, and uh, my wife now has bunny envy. They, uh, they have a house bunny named Clover. Flop-eared, white, sweetest thing, sits on your lap and, you know, does a little nose thing and hops around the house. And it even has, like, there's bunny litter boxes. I had no idea. Uh, But that's cool. You're probably wondering, how is he going to segue that story into the sex god topic? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Bunnies. I didn't even think of the bunnies. Uh, That's good. Okay, so I'm... This has been bought. Yeah, I might need you to run up here and help me. How is this? How about that? Okay. Really? Really better? Okay, so the bunnies. Uh, they are one of the connections, the one of the life-giving connections we have that I talked about last week. Remember that? I talked about how in the beginning God created us to connect with himself with the creation, like with the bunnies, uh, with others, and then with ourselves. Do you remember that? Those are the places that we find life. Those are the places that we, those are the relationships we were made for. And uh, with that, looking at sexuality in the big picture, sexuality being more about connection than the, than the physical act, although the physical act of sex is the, the most intimate and uh, most personal expression of connection that we can have. That's why it's reserved for uh, lifelong relationships uh, that we call marriage. But I, here's what I'm saying in all this. Sex is more than physical, right? Remember this? It has an emotional and a spiritual component as well. So we're in this series called Sex God, Money God. And I'm having fun so far. I don't know if you're having fun. But I'm going to be talking about sex through the month of February. And then we'll, Bob and I will be sharing. Oh, Emily's teaching on sex too at the end of the month. <laughs> Bob and I will be co-teaching uh, the money portion in March. And so last week we talked about pornography and lust. And... This week, I'll be talking about singleness a little bit, although I think a lot of what we talked about last week would apply to you if you're single. Are our singles here today? A couple of you are here. Some of you are missing. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Next week, I'll be co-teaching with Allison, and she's reading this book called Embracing the Body, and it has to do, uh, I think, especially women, although men, too, just have a lot of shame in regard to our bodies, and there's just some things that, uh, that are in need of healing, I think. So I don't know exactly what we'll all be talking about, but we're a married couple talking about stuff during a sex series. So we got to put our heads together yet, but it will be good, and she'll have a lot of stuff to bring. So back to last week, because this is kind of like foundational stuff. I told you the whole story of the Bible. Do you remember that? And the story of the Bible starts with creation, 
where things are good and perfect and whole and in harmony. There's a fall, Christians call the fall, where humans rebel against God's love, and then there's all this evil and brokenness and shame, remember, that enters into the world. But then Jesus comes back to restore everything. Those four connections that had been severed and warped and polluted, Jesus comes back to restore and heal and repair. And then we look forward to, at the end of the world, Jesus' return, what we call the consummation, if you do like theology reading. There should be a picture. Does that picture help? Uh, That's when God comes to fully restore. So we live in this time between where everything's really broken and messed up and when everything's going to be amazing and good and perfect again, right? And I use the word worldview. So this is the story that helps me interpret everything else that happens in the world, the lens through which I see and understand everything else that happens in the world. And stories are incredibly powerful. Stories have the power, whether you realize it or not, to shape our worldviews. So as Christians, we're trying to root ourselves deeply in this story of the Bible and what God teaches us through the Bible. But there's a lot of other stories that we're hearing all the time every day that are also shaping our worldview. Whether it's Mad Men or Frozen or Finding Nemo, they're telling us a story and they're helping us, they're shaping the way that we view the world. And it's not necessarily a bad thing, but whether you realize it or not, it's a true thing. The stories we watch shape how we view the world. So it might be The Simpsons or Family Guy or Grey's Anatomy. And a lot of these shows are doing actually very specific types of shaping, and they're shaping the way that we view sex and what sex is for and how we love and what relationships should look like. Am I right? Anybody watch Friends growing up? The Simpsons? Okay, we'll stop the confessions right there. So I think this video is going to work, but I'm going to show you a video. And this is a video that had incredible influence over me when I was in high school. It shaped the way that I viewed love. It's a video movie called Meet Joe Black. Is this going to work? Can you give me a thumbs up so that I... Is it going to work? I think it's going to work, so I'm going to keep describing it. Yeah, don't play it yet. Sorry, pause. That's for me. I just wanted to know. (laughs) Um, Anyway, sorry about that. this is one of those movies back in the VHS days. It was a two-tape VHS. It was a long one. And the scene that you're going to see, uh, well, it kind of messed me up. But uh, here's what's going on here is there's this billionaire. And there's this woman who's his daughter, and they're on his private helicopter. And this woman is scheduled, like engaged, planning to get married to this man named Drew who she doesn't really love, but who has a lot of good things on paper. He's actually a business partner with her dad. So her dad is actually kind of probing around, picking around, saying, do you really want to marry this Drew? Okay? So that uh, still kind of tugs at my heart. Does it tug on your heart? There's something really, really right about what, uh, I forget his name, Anthony Hopkins is saying here. Uh, And it's because I think better than the Christian church has over most of its history, where we think the center of our being is in our brain, what Anthony Hopkins is making an appeal to there is like the center of our being is in our hearts. The problem with what he's saying, I don't know if you caught it, is he said, turn off your brain. And essentially, 
look for anywhere, any place, not anywhere, any place, but like give your heart away quickly. Let, let lightning strike and then, and then let yourself fall head over heels, right? So as a high school kid, I heard that. And there was this girl that I came to be attracted to that I liked. And I just, I gave my heart away as quickly as possible. And I was going to be her knight in shining armor. And I, it didn't matter if she was dating someone else, which she was. I was going <laughs> to... I was going to stick with her through boyfriends and through trouble and through mean, hurtful things. And I'm not putting this on her because she actually said, time and time again, I'm not interested. (laughs) But that didn't, anytime she would let me drive uh, the hour and a half north, I would do it. In fact, when I moved to Michigan to go to college, anytime she would like give me an opportunity to drive the eight hours west, I would do it. And finally, when things seemed like they were going really well, I took, I took a semester in Israel. And uh, I'd, always, I'd always said, you know, I'm going to put up with any boyfriend unless she goes back to that one boyfriend she was dating when I first met her. And of course, I come back from Israel, and she's involved with that boyfriend. And for like two years, I was a mess. I was a ball of, I don't know, I was a ball of sadness. So you see, like, it's actually not great advice to just give your heart away uh, to anybody, to try to actually, you know, uh, even nurture that sort of thing. Unless you know there's something mutual going on. I would, I mean, I would think about her all the time. I would like, we went to prom together and I kept a little piece of her dress and, you know, I would like, so it's like uh, pathetic, right? Okay, I'm saying that that was pathetic. And in this movie, okay, this, this movie doesn't make the point, but in this movie, you know who this girl falls in love with? Brad Pitt. Joe Black, who actually death has come into the world personified as this tall, good-looking blonde guy. That advice, turn off your head, follow your emotions. The, the movie doesn't make the point, but she fell in love with death. Like, that is bad relational <laughs> advice. She made a bad relational move, right, to fall in love with death. Are you tracking with me? It's making sense. So there's, uh, there's actually a little competition that this worldview, that the movie tries to promote, and what the Bible teaches comes into. So in Proverbs 4.23, this is going to be our main text today. In Proverbs 4.23... God gives this wisdom. Proverbs is a book full of wisdom. He says, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Some translations say that for your heart is the wellspring of life. It's the thing that bubbles up and guides everything else. And I want to I want to make a distinction here quickly because in the West, when I say the West, I mean like, you know, Western Europe and the United States, when we hear heart, we think that it's really only about the emotions, about how we're feeling, which of course like goes up and down depending on the day, depending on what people have said to us, depending on if the girl has let you talk to her on the phone or whatever, right? They're up and they're down. But in the Bible, it actually goes a little bit deeper than that. Because in the Bible, the heart is the seat of your desires, the seat of your love. And when you think about love, it's multi-dimensional, has lots of components, but it's actually, it answers that thing fundamentally, what do you want? 
I've talked about this before, right? So when we talk about guarding our heart, it's actually about guarding our desires. And out of, as this um, passage teaches, out of our heart actually comes out all of the life that we do. So how we think is shaped by that question, what do we want? How we act is shaped by that question, what do we want? And what do we feel is shaped by the answer to the question, what do we want? And I want to want to make a point there, because we live in a world, we live in a culture where we think that we have to be victims to our emotions. That if, we, if it feels right, then it is right. And if I, if I feel a certain way, then everything I do is justified by those feelings. And this seems to be saying, no, there's actually more to it than that. Like, we can, we can submit our feelings to something greater. Um, we, can, we can do things that either evoke or turn down how we feel about someone. That's why whenever someone breaks up, like two people that are dating when they break up, you got to put away like all the pictures and put away all the memorabilia and maybe take a break so that your heart can heal up and not continue to reattach. Right? I know some of you, it's been a while since you've been single, but if you keep looking at the pictures, if you keep even praying for that person you just broke up with, you're actually going to feed the fire of your emotions. Am I right? Now, you might, I told you I was going to talk about singleness, and this certainly applies to single people, but married people, are you listening? Do you need to guard your heart? Oh, man. Yes. Because you're going to find yourself, right, having emotions, having feelings for people that you're not married to. And then you're going to have a decision, am I going to try to put out those feelings, or am I going to fan the flame of those feelings? So this, this applies... To us all, I probably find myself needing to guard my heart more now that I'm married than when I wasn't. It may, it's close. It's different because when you're an adolescent boy, things are really weird, <laughs> and they go haywire. But, but here's the idea: there are things we can do not just to shape our emotions, but also to shape our desires. The Bible is full of stuff, full of things, full of ideas, full of suggestions that we can do things to shape the desires that we have. And what Christians have called these are the disciplines. So your being here today is doing something to shape your heart, to shape your desire for God. You've made a decision to come. Maybe you didn't feel like coming, but you said, I'm going to come because I love God. And in that, there's a, there's a shaping of your desire. Allison and I are pretty close to 100% on this, but to keep our love with each other, like every time we leave and every time we arrive, we, we give each other a kiss. It's a habit that actually does something to shape our desires. Um, so from the Christian perspective, the disciplines are less about even the things that we do and more about making space for God to show up. So coming to church is a great discipline that can shape your desires. Spending time in prayer, reading your Bible. People have used fasting in the past, like not eating food or not doing something because they're going to consecrate that time to God. It actually does something to shape your desires. But finally, and I think this is uh, really significant, our desires are shaped not just because we pray, but we can pray for God to shape our desires. So many of you don't know this, but in college, I was a big flirt. I was super awkward in high school, and then in college, I had a friend who taught me how to flirt. 
And I was just, I was friendly to all the girls, and apparently all the girls liked me, but I didn't know that. But like entire floors of dorms, I would just kind of like, you know, be friendly with and flirt with. Um, and I found myself like dating lots and lots and lots of girls. Allison is giving me a look. Uh, my wife, Allison, is giving me a look. Anyway, here, here my criteria as I continued to date actually shifted in the, in the wrong direction. I was incredibly shallow. I was dating girls mostly, almost exclusively based on looks. And when I came to realize that, I started to pray. I said, God, would you please start to shape my desire so that instead of just being attracted to what is superficial on the outside, that I start to to be attracted to what's beautiful on the inside, to someone's character, to their relationship with you. And this was, uh, it didn't take long actually. I'm thinking like two to three months where Allison <laughs> enters the scene. And it's a funny thing because I was like, I tried to sign up for eHarmony, but for some reason, I don't usually fail in things electronic, but I somehow thought I signed up for eHarmony and then didn't sign up for eHarmony. But anyway, then, it, then my, wife, my aunt set us up through Facebook. And that's another story for another time. But then, like, I, I just feel like I got the full package. Like, she's one of the most beautiful people I've ever known, uh, let alone dated. And she's got the most beautiful heart that I've ever seen. And one of the big reasons that we got married, beyond God speaking to us about it, is because she was someone who could challenge me spiritually. She helped me develop. Uh, I had been through seminary. I was going to be a pastor, but she helped me develop a relationship with Jesus that went beyond the head and into the heart. And she would just challenge me on that. For I mean, we, After we were married, she kept challenging me on that. And it, she was, I think, she had the, a moment where she's like, what did I get myself into? But... <laughs> Uh, do you see? Here's what I'm saying. Like God can actually reach in and start to reprogram our hearts if we ask Him, and I trust that He will do that. So I would encourage you to try. So guard your heart, Proverbs says, and we don't have to jump far to infer how this relates to sex. When I say sex, now I'm talking about the actual physical act of sex. Because if it's true, and I think everybody believes that this is true, that sex is more than just physical, it's also emotional and spiritual. If you have sex with someone, you're creating a connection, a very, very deep connection. And it will not, it's not possible to guard your heart when you're doing something so intimate and so physical. That's why, I mean, I don't know who I'm speaking to here, but if you start having sex with your friends, it really messes up the relationship. It gets super complicated. Again, if you ever watched Friends, super complicated, super confusing, super hurtful. Uh, It changes the relationship when you have sex with somebody. So guard your heart. And the the Bible all over the place actually says that sex belongs in marriage. And I'm talking about sex, the physical act. And, and there's, you know, if you Google, you guys are able to Google. I'm not going to, like, get into an argument with you about this right now. But there's a passage I found. I think I found this, uh, really, it just, I found it yesterday. And it was like, oh, this is perfect. 
I love this. It's from Proverbs 5, verse 15. So I'm going to read this to you. Here, uh, the wisdom is, the teacher is speaking to uh, the student. Drink water from your own cistern, running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets, should your streams of water in the public square, let them be yours alone, never to be shared with strangers. May your fountain be blessed, and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth. In other words, the person you married initially, like, may you rejoice in your wife even as you grow old. A loving doe, a graceful deer, may her breasts satisfy you always. May you ever be intoxicated with her love. I love that. I think it's a bit, if, do I need to explain that to you? <laughs> Sex here, like, is being equated to water. Can I just read that top part again? Drink water from your own cistern, from your own marriage. Should your, should, this is a, like a rhetorical question, no, of course they shouldn't. Should your springs overflow into the streets? Your streams of water in the public square. I think this is great. Isn't that cool? I think it's good. I don't know if you think it's good. Huh? But it's, it's good stuff. And I'm not actually doing a very good job right now about talking about singleness. So let's get back to that. Uh, singleness, some of you need to hear this. Some of you that are single, some of you who are married also need to hear this because you have single children. Singleness is celebrated in the New Testament. And there's, again, you find it in various places. 1 Corinthians 7 is kind of a confusing passage. I'm not going to try to get through it today. But Paul is pretty even-handed here in talking about the pros and cons to being single versus being married. So I'm going I'm to just quick turn there and read you a little thing rather than try to do the whole thing. But he says this uh, to someone who's, who's not married. Uh, in a sense, giving advice. He says, but for those, for those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want you to spare, I want to spare you this. Like, there's pros and cons, and grass usually looks greener on the other side. Okay, so Paul is, like, just saying, just so you know, you can, you can turn marriage into something that it's not. It's actually really hard, and it's a lot of, ton of sacrifice. If you're married, you know this. If you have kids, you know this even more, I think, so from what I've heard. He goes on, though. He says, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. He goes on later to talk about women in the same way. Uh, but a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Right? So Paul here is being pretty even-handed. He's saying, for one, there's a lot of trouble when you're married. Not that it's, there's not trouble when you're single too, but like, just, I want, he says, I want to spare you this. He's actually saying, maybe it's better, maybe singleness is actually a gift. And I know I don't want to use that too strongly because that's been, I think, misused and that's been used in a hurtful way against single people. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. But when he explains it, he's actually talking about how when you're married, your, your heart is divided. And I've experienced this personally myself. So uh, let, let's take this a step further. When you're married, it is very, very easy to go to your spouse for the things that only God can give. 
uh, and there's actually a word for that when something starts to compete with God or becomes more important than God. In the Bible, that's, that's called an idol. And idols, I mean, they're bad, just so you know. But uh, when we, especially when we were newlywed, but still today, you know, I have this beautiful, amazing wife, and some of you do too. Some of you have handsome, incredible husbands. When they're, especially when they're good, it's easy to start to shift your heart and make them as important or more important than God. It's easy to turn them into an idol. And that's actually destructive. Remember I said that was bad? Um, don't hear me the wrong way, but the more that I expect from Allison, the worse my day is. And the more she expects from me, the worse my day is. When she starts to, I think Anthony Hopkins did this, right? When she starts to look to me for her ultimate happiness, I cannot provide her that. When she starts to look to me for her entire sum of the emotional needs that she has, I disappoint her. And then she's frustrated with me, and I'm frustrated with her, and things get, like, screwy real, real fast. So Paul, Paul is saying, like, just beware when you're married. There's incredible danger to turn your spouse into an idol. And I think this applies to single person, single people too, because you can quickly turn the idea of marriage into your idol. If only I were married, my life would be so much happier. Does this anybody, anybody know this? I'm mostly speaking to single people right now. That would solve all my, I would be happy then. I would be full. I would com- be complete. Uh, the idea of marriage becomes like the thing, the, mo- the most important thing. And Paul says, right, you have a divided heart at that point when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. So singleness is celebrated in the New Testament. Uh, and beyond that, you heard me allude to this, you can be single, I want you to hear this, you can be single and be a complete and whole person. You can be single and live a full life. And we don't have to go any farther uh, in that, in in looking for an example of that, than Jesus himself. Okay, the Da Vinci Code is fiction. Jesus was unmarried, and he was actually the picture of what we were all meant to be, of how we were all meant to live. And again, I'm not saying it's bad to be married, and I'm not saying if you have a desire to be married that you shouldn't be looking for a wife or a husband. I'm not saying that. But you can live a full, whole, and complete life as a single person. That is what I'm saying. And so, we, in fact, we actually find that in the Bible, sex and marriage is a metaphor for the gospel. This is, comes from Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5 but um, Paul, a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, says that marriage, the purpose of marriage is actually to reenact the gospel or to show us how much Jesus loves his church. Because marriage, as it's supposed to be, as it's meant to be, is supposed to be unconditional and supposed to be selfless. And you're supposed to, uh, Paul goes into this in Ephesians 5, you're supposed to mutually submit and cooperate and serve. Jesus shows us lots of examples of how that works. In fact, like to love someone, to love your spouse, you know, you have to be willing to die for that person. To think of, you know, if you're married, your wife, to be like your own body, to treat her as if she was yourself, you know, with respect and, and love and sacrifice and surrender. And there's an interesting shift, too, in the Bible where 
most cultures look at this differently. Because in the Bible, you have something being elevated above your family. It says that the family of God is actually of more importance, more primary than your family of origin. So there's all over the Bible these examples of Paul referring to, like if I'm Paul, pretend, I'm think, I think of you guys as brothers and sisters. So your family, some of this is hard. This is hard to enact, and this, this is going to make your, your family of origin mad at you <laughs> at times. But like Paul is saying, your church family is just that. Your family. We use that language a lot around here. Like, there's actually a connection that we have that goes deeper than blood. Like, there's a spiritual connection here. There's a spiritual oneness. And so, in Genesis 1, right, God looks at Adam and says, it's not good for man to be alone. And so now, we find Jesus not writing a book, but starting a family where now we never have to be alone. We are brothers and sisters. In fact, Jesus takes it a step further and says that marriage is temporary. It's only meant to be lifelong. In our vows, right, we say, tell death to us part. In Matthew 22, Jesus explains that in heaven, there's not, these are his words, there's not going to be marriages not giving or taking in marriage. And I don't like that. I can kind of, I think I can just, I think I can change that if I, if I bend enough. Because uh, I'm like a hopeless romantic at times, and I, I like to think that we'll be married. I don't know. That, I mean, I have to concede. Jesus seems to be saying in Matthew 22, marriage is temporary. You were made for something else, and that is like a spiritual family that we're all headed to. So that's something you can look into if you want. I'm going to take like a, just a real brief kind of segue here. We're talking about singleness. We're talking about how you can be whole and complete and live a full life. And I, I feel like I cannot do a sex series without just briefly bouncing off of uh, a major issue in our culture, and that's homosexuality. So I want you to hear this. We in the vineyard balance attention between being a place of radical welcome and of holding up the Bible's teachings. And if you're gay here today, I want you to know we want you in our church. We love you. God loves you. And I'm sorry because the church has not always been loving. And the church has said funny things at times, like gay, gay marriage is destroying marriage in our country. I don't think that's true. Gay marriage isn't hurting my marriage any. You know what's hurting my marriage? The sex industry. You know what's destroying a lot of marriages? Broken promises. The lack of integrity. So I'm sorry that there's so many things that are projected on you if you're gay. But I have to, I have to balance the radical welcome with what I, I think the Bible is saying. And I think if I'm reading the Bible honestly... Uh, God, is, God teaches us that marriage is meant for a man and a woman. And I wish, if there's anything in the Bible that I wish I could change, I think it would be that. But by saying in my heart that Jesus is Lord, I'm actually taking his words and, and putting it above kind of the cultural trend, the cultural current. I'm standing, even though it's, I wish it was different, 
And I don't understand. God doesn't really give us a why. Uh, I think that God's design for marriage is between a man and a woman. And there's lots of places. People, I think, will, will take different passages and like say, see, it's so clear. And I don't think it, I don't, I think a lot of those places people go are a little bit shaky. But Romans 1, I think, is the place that I just cannot get myself out of. Um, and, I, and I'm not saying I'm going to make you leave or I'm going to make you split up or anything. I'm just saying blanket statement across everybody in this room. Uh, submit your sexuality to Jesus. And like you care about this issue more than I care about this issue. Some of my favorite people on the whole planet are gay. I, like They are some of the most uh, secure, interesting. Some of our best friends in Michigan... Uh, we're, we're at a long-term gay relationship, and we loved them. We had fun with them. We, I wish they would have come to our church, and I understand why sometimes they don't. But, I, I mean, the vineyard, actually, uh, we, we find a lot of people uh, who, have, who, are, who are in gay relationships in our church because they're looking for God, just like we are. <laughs> we're following Jesus. They are, too. But I don't want to use the us and they like there's this divide. I'm just... I'm saying, like, we are all on a journey, and we all, me especially, me included, like, are trying to work this out. We're trying to figure it out. We're trying to live it out. And so I want to again say, gay people belong in our church. <laughs> um, and I love gay people, and God loves gay people, and you can belong. And in the vineyard, we do, we draw a line. Just to be clear, we draw a line at leadership. But that doesn't mean you can't be part of the family. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn it back. Uh, the Bible says, guard your heart. Our hearts are attracted to beauty to goodness. That's why some of us can so easily turn good things into ultimate things. It's because sex is good. There's a lot of other things in this world that we love too that compete with God and we love them. Our hearts are drawn to them because they are good and because they were meant for good, like money. Money is good and there's a lot of people, Jesus warns us, that love money. But as soon as good things become ultimate things, if it's not God, it really gets messy really fast. But you can see how this works, right? If you love money more than anything else, suddenly money is going to affect all of your thoughts and all of your decisions. You're going to take jobs because of the money. And when you're in that job, you're going to make decisions based on the money. So if there's something that's not looking good with the money, there's a great chance that you're going to, you know, cheat and change and do some illegal things. And because if money is your ultimate good, everything's going to shift toward money because your heart and money have this, like, strong connection that you can't get over. Um, the ironic thing about that is nothing sets you up for financial ruin like the love of money. If you're willing to do anything to get money and keep money, there's a great chance that that money is going to be taken away. Same with sex. If you're willing to do anything to get sex, to gain sex, to have sex, to get married, 
It's actually going to poison your relationship. I talked about that before. But there's good news to this. It's that our hearts were actually made for something better and more beautiful than, uh, than anything that this world can offer. And I'm just going to read, some of you have maybe read this book, The Life of Pi. Uh, they turned it into a movie that I didn't like very much. But uh, at this point in the book, the, the, the young boy is on a spiritual journey. So he's, uh, he's in India, and he's actually coming from a Hindu perspective. And he's in a conversation with a, uh, like a priest, Father, what's his name, Father Martin. And he has a hard time with the Jesus thing. He says this, he says, this Jesus, the Son of God, on the other hand, who goes hungry, who suffers from thirst, who gets tired, who is sad, who is anxious, who is heckled and harassed, who is put up with his followers and don't, who don't get it, and opponents who don't respect him. What kind of God is that? It's a God on too human a scale. That's what. This son is a God who spent most of his time telling stories, talking. This son is a God who walked a pedestrian God and in a hot place. With a stride like any human stride, the sandal reaching just above the rocks along the way. And when he splurged on transportation, it was on a regular donkey. This son is a God who died in three hours, with moans, gasps, and laments. What kind of God is that? What is there to inspire in this Jesus? Love, said Father Martin. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we're talking about some tough stuff and some things with a lot of pain and some things that compete with you for our desires and we pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would reveal to us your beauty that is shown in no more clear, beautiful way than in your love when you came down to be with us in human form to experience all that we experience and to die. We pray now, Jesus, that you would send your Holy Spirit to come. I pray that now as we return to singing and worship that you would be the one speaking, that you would come down and heal, that you would bless every tear, and that as people in this room actually begin to, uh, <laughs> to, sh to engage with you, even if it's a struggle, even if it's a fist fight, that you would bless that interaction. Just as you blessed Jacob, who you wrestled with. We trust you, God. We know that you are bigger than every question. There's so much that we don't understand. There's things that I don't understand. 
So I pray that as, uh, as people leave here, that, that it would be your truth and your heart that is remembered. And if there's anything that I said that isn't true, that it would be forgotten. So once again, we ask that you would do what I cannot, and that is to come and to bring healing and to bring wholeness. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.